there's the sound. We're a very quiet church. Hello and welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. Not sure what happened to our sound there. I don't know if you heard it, but we didn't hear it. Uh, good to have you with us. We are uh, actually coming to the end of uh, our Wednesday night Bible studies. We uh, take off for the summer. Those of you around the world say, why do you take off for the summer? Because we live in Wisconsin, and we have such few days of warmth that uh, ain't nobody coming on Wednesday nights. <laughs> So uh, tonight and then next week, actually, Pastor Joe's going to do a third installment on his teaching on various religions of the world, and then we'll finish up with one more, and then that's pretty much it. We'll take off for the summer and uh, have fun hanging out with your family and friends, and then we'll pick it up again. In September, we are working our way through the New Testament. <clears throat> we are in the letter to the Colossian church, as Paul is uh, teaching the people the New Testament pretty much hits four major points, kind of broad categories here, but one is just that Jesus Christ, in fact, is the Son of God, the Messiah, the promised Messiah, raised from the dead, crucified on the cross, raised from the dead. I mean, that's like argument number one, major. Uh, number two uh, would be the fact of explaining that we no longer live by the Old Testament rules, uh, they may influence us to one degree or another, but we don't live by laws written on stone uh, or parchment. We live by the law of grace, God in our hearts. Not that there aren't specific rules of living, and the New Testament is pretty clear about that. It's, it's fairly basic. Basic Christian morality is pretty clear, uh, not very complicated, so a lot of effort goes into explaining that, um, uh, which is you know, what we're talking about. Then the uh, third one would be the detail of that, how to live out your Christian faith. We don't live by the law anymore. This is how we live out our Christianity. And then the fourth one would be what's going to happen at the end. Okay, the end time. Jesus is going to come back and there's... Uh, so now Paul in his writings is uh, kind of hitting on all four of these as we're going along. He is now in Rome where this is where... Uh, the record ends for us. There's some debate as to whether or not he gets out of uh, prison after two years there uh, and then is arrested again later or, in fact, was uh, martyred at that time. We don't really know. All we know is we don't hear any more from him. There's more, no, no more letters, no more record. So the implication pretty much is that this is it for him. He goes to Rome and, and that is it. And he's writing now off these letters to some of these churches and uh, important people in his life and really stressing um, a lot now of, uh, you know, the very thing we were talking about, the theology of, of Christ, what, what, what all this is about, uh, the fact that we don't live now by the Old Testament law, this is how we're supposed to live, and then some as well as to the end time. And then, of course, we'll get eventually to the book of Revelation, which is all about the end time. All right, so now we're in Colossians, the third chapter, and we're verse 18. Now is when he hits on uh, a lot of emphasis about how to live. He's been doing this throughout this third chapter. Don't do this. Do these things. Be kind. Don't be sexually immoral. Uh, don't be full of anger, rage, malice, slander. You know, don't lie to people. I mean, th this is basic Christian morality that we're supposed to do. And then uh, we get to verse 18, and he starts uh, talking about how to structure our lives uh, and he speaks to wives, he speaks to husbands, he speaks to children, he speaks to fathers, he speaks to slaves and slave owners. So let's jump in at that. Verse three, uh, chapter three, verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Not a very popular verse in the Bible. But let's try and tackle that a little bit, okay? This idea of submitting. Now, one thing is clear. Words change meaning over time. This is absolutely crystal clear. Uh, in the English language, some of the most basic examples is some extreme examples, you know. When I was growing up as a teenager, we were all using the word cool. Well, it was really cool. The older generation just stared at us when we said that because them cool meant temperature. And they couldn't understand, every time we said cool, 
what, what? I mean, they, they couldn't handle it. Um, <laughs> um, you know, bad eventually became really good. Uh, then there was the argument between what was hip and square, and Huey Lewis said, no, it's hip to be square. Uh, you know, all these things keep changing. It's like, what the heck? Um, uh, and even some of the most, and a lot of the words actually in the uh, King James Bible used, the Bible that we used uh, when we were growing up, uh, you know, Pastor Joe, Pastor Nathan, myself, the, a lot of you, that's, that was the Bible. There's all kinds of words in the King James Bible now that are flat out considered curse words uh, because words change meaning, but they're not, they didn't mean that when it was written, but it, it, it changes, you know. Uh, Paul wrote in Hebrews that uh, God, well, I say Paul. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. We'll get to that debate when we get there. Writes the letter, the Hebrew says, you know, look, if you're a child of God, God's going to smack you upside the head. That's what it is, right? And he basically says, if God never takes you out to the woodshed and smacks you up, whatever that means into you, he'll use all kinds of things to get your attention, then you're not really a child of God. Okay, the King James Bible says that you're a bastard. Well, you can't say bastard anymore because that's nasty now. So now the new translations say you're, now you're illegitimate. <laughs> Which technically is what bastard means, right? Uh, in the Old Testament, um, you know, to urinate, they use the word piss. It's all throughout the King James Bible. In fact, what was very odd throughout all, all of, uh, big chunks of it, all of First and Second Chronicles and stuff, whenever they mentioned men, in other words, there were a thousand men, it never said men. It was translated because literally it says there were a thousand of those who piss against the wall. <laughs> you doubt me, get a King Andrew Bible, look it up. I mean, so it's said over and over and over again. You know, why one has to describe how one urinates to discuss whether or not they're a male or female. You know, they don't say male or female. They say those who piss against the wall, those who don't piss against the wall. I'm not making this up. So this is what they said. Well, now we can't say that because it's inappropriate. Why? Because someone says it is. And now the word piss is bad, so we don't say piss. So we have to say urinate. Oh, my goodness, it never stops. You know, we were reading in, uh, you know, Abraham. When Abraham, they, they made vows, you know. They, you know, basically put your hands on my privates and swear. Well, you can't say that because that's inappropriate in Western culture. One does not touch other people's privates. So they translated, put your hand under my thigh, which makes no sense at all. I think the privates would make more sense. I mean, what the heck is that? Uh, and it goes on and on. It, it doesn't stop. The language is constantly changing words that were okay or not okay. Some that were, you know, in the King James Bible. Every time they talk about a donkey, it's referred to as an ass. Well, then somewhere along the line, someone says the word ass means someone's backside, and now it's inappropriate. Now, actually, in the English language, the word ass actually, more often than not, is referred to a very stubborn person. So now you can say the word ass because now, apparently, it has been cleaned up. And some of us have written books about asses, <laughs> which is about very stubborn people. So now that people get it, right? So, I mean, literally in my life, I went from a donkey to a curse word to now just a stubborn person. Who makes up these rules? I don't know. All that to say, these words are constantly changing. If they're, now, and the translators of the Bible, some of them, some of them are just absolutely anal. I know what that word means, all right? Uh, because they go out of their way not to use certain words because they just, they've just determined you can't inappropriately use the word and they come up with other words. It actually changes the intensity of the meaning. We were talking about scubula. Paul said, I consider all my successes in life a big pile of scubula, which was the Greek word for the common everyday nasty word for human excrement. We have a, a different word for that. Also starts with an S. Well, you can't use that word and they couldn't even say poop. And they couldn't say dung, which is the King James Bible. So now they call refuse. Well, calling it a big pile of refuse is not nearly as impacting as what a pile of crap, all right? I mean, much more impacting. When Paul got angry at the Galatians, because they wanted people to get circumcised, which means to cut off the end of your wiener, he says, we don't have to do that anymore. He got so mad, he said, I wish these guys would go the whole way and cut their wieners off altogether. Well, the new translations don't say that. Now they say, I would, they would emasculate themselves, which nobody knows what that means. If you look it up, it means cut your wiener off. You know what I'm saying? But they can't say that because we can't talk about wieners. And, you know, it's just, it's, I don't know who makes up these rules, but they do. 
having said all of that and enjoying saying all kinds of nasty words in church. (laughs) (laughs) And rejoicing that you don't vote on anything. Um, (laughs) We get to this word. Now, if there is a word, well, you would think these translators would get a clue about the word when both, there's two words used about women relating to their husbands. Obey and submit. Both of those words in the English language are highly offensive, highly insulting. And why these nimrods who can't refer to a wiener can't get around getting rid of these words submit and obey is beyond my understanding because it still becomes problematic as we try to teach the scriptures today and people freak out over these words because nobody uses these words anymore. If you are an owner of a company, and you come in and start demanding that your employees obey you, you're probably going to end up in court. Are you listening to me? If you're working for uh, some supervisor, so you guys need to obey, you need to submit to my instructions, they're probably going to end up in court. You can't say those things. They're in- insulting, offensive phrases, primarily because it often refers to slavery. That's the first thing people think of or oppression of one person on top of another. Why these modern translators who go out of their way to say the word thigh instead of whatever, why they can't get this word straightened out irritates me to no end, can you tell? Well, what word should it be? In our uh, current day language, the most effective, easiest word that captures the meaning here should be to listen to. For example, Now, even with children, now some people will still use the word obey with children, but even with children most of the time, you don't hear that word anymore. You know, your wife starts yelling and the dad says, hey, listen to your mom. Right? You guys need to listen. All right, again, some parents, because of biblical raised, you need to obey your mother. All right. But uh, even that word in that context is rarely used today. It's listen to. You need to listen. You, you come to work. You guys need to listen to the instructions. Your supervisor comes over. Listen, you need to listen to what you're supposed to do. That is the word that is used today and is, in essence, the meaning in this context. And it's not so stinking offensive and get everybody else so mad. The phrase, wives, listen to your husbands, is not nearly as offensive as wives, obey your husbands. Well, that's not very popular, all right? So we're still stuck defending this moronic word, and why these nimrods can't figure this out just ticks me off. It's not an oppressive thing. A man is not supposed to be running around bossing his wife around. If you think that's what the scripture means, you are a nimrod wrapped up in a moron. <laughs> or I'm bossing your wife. You gotta do what I say. What if you need to obey? She ought to just punch you in the face, is what I think, and then come pray with the pastor afterwards. <laughs> that's not what it's talking about. What uh, listening means to be listening, taking input, okay, showing some respect. We don't use words like obey in all of these contexts that we talk about today. Highly, highly inappropriate in our present day language. I wish they would quit using the word. That's all it's talking about. Wives, listen to your husbands. I don't want to listen to them. You should. Well, he's a moron. Well, then you're doing this wrong. Don't call him a moron. You should listen. Husbands, love your wives. We don't have a problem with that word. Okay, do not be harsh with them. In other words, don't be a jerk. I'm going to be preaching about jerks on Mother's Day this Sunday. How to deal with a jerk. That's the sermon. My wife wanted me to preach it. Seriously. And, and in all the years that I have preached, all the time she suggested a sermon has been zero. So it really caught my attention. When she said, you need to preach about that. I said, on Mother's Day? Yes, because mothers will know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> All right, so we'll blame her if it doesn't go over well. <laughs> All right. Children, here we go with the word obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Children, listen to your parents would be a much better translation, and it gets the spirit of what we're talking about. Fathers, do not embitter your children. 
or they will become discouraged. Don't be so harsh. Lighten up. Don't be a jerk, all right? And so that's easy as a dad to cross that line. I don't know how many dads have ever done that. I've done it many, many times. And when I do, I stop, I go back, and I'll apologize to my own kids. Sorry, I should not have gone crazy. You make me crazy, but I shouldn't have gone crazy. Didn't need to be so intense about this, that, or the other, all right? Because you're just going to discourage them. Why is that important? Because a lot of people get their picture of God from their dads. The reason why some of you have such a difficult time understanding that God absolutely is crazy about you and loves you is because you had an absolutely horrible father. And hopefully you can get past that, but that's the challenge. Those of us who had very compassionate, caring dads have no problem connecting with the idea that God loves us no matter what. You see what I'm saying? So the Bible says don't do that because you're going to be giving them, at some level you are representing God in the life of that child. All right? Now here's an interesting thing. Slaves obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Now, uh, we don't have slaves today and slave masters. Why did the Bible talk about it? Because in this day, that's exactly what they had. They didn't really have employers and employees. You had wealthy people who owned others. <laughs> it was basically it. Or you sold yourself into indentured servitude for whatever, to pay off debts, stuff like that. you became a laborer, most of these are labor. Either you owned your own property or you were owned by others to one degree or another. Um, so that's the way it was. The most, uh, for them to come along and say, there should be no slavery in this time of, of life would have made absolutely no sense to anybody. It would have created absolute anarchy. Now, once we started understanding things as we grew along, and obviously we had a big war over it and stuff like that, because a lot of Christians in the South preach these verses. The Bible approves of slavery. Well, I don't know that it approved of it one way or the other. What I was just saying is it was what it was. It was there. It was just, you know, it is. Um, so a better translation for us, actually, in these verses is to use the word employee and employer. So let's do that unless you happen to have slaves, then we'll have you arrested. But... Uh, <laughs> So if you use the word employers and employees, look how much more sense it makes. Employees, listen to your bosses in everything and do it not only when they're watching you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with your whole heart as working for the Lord, not as for the human boss, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism he throws in there. Bosses, provide for your employees with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have an employer in heaven. So now all that makes a lot more sense for us in the context in which we live. Bottom line, as Christians, you should be the best worker your boss has. Straight up. And do it uh, as uh, a testimony of you know, I said, man, you, you work harder than anybody. Why is that? Because I'm, in my heart, I'm working for Jesus. I'm working for God. I want to be a great witness, that kind of thing. Christians should be highly uh, sought after as uh, people to hire. And that's actually true in, in parts of the country where this culture is preached a lot. Uh, they find out you're a churchgoer and whatnot like that. They, you know, they hire you quick because they know that you learned to work hard and show respect and that kind of stuff. That should be an ideal thing. That should be something that should actually mark a Christian. Further instructions. What does he say? Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Now, there's one thing that's emphasized over and over again in prayer, your prayer life, is to be thankful. God likes it when you say thanks. Are you thankful to God? Actually, are you thankful to the people in your life? Do you thank your wife? For what she does. Oh, she knows it. No, you're a jerk. Say, thank you for what you do. If you don't routinely say that, there's something wrong with you. Stop it. So 
some of these guys are. I told you I love you once. If anything changes, I'll let you know. You know, don't, don't be like that. <laughs> be thankful. Be thankful to the people around you, wives to husbands as well. When was the last time you thanked your husband for what he does? You know, even your kids. You know, I mean, there's something that should mark a believer in Christ is we are thankful people. Thank you. Thank you for helping with that. Thank you for what you do. Thank, that should be something. And if there's something that God loves, it's when people do that to them, to him. We're supposed to be thankful. Let's emphasize over and over and over again. So he says, devote yourself to prayer uh, and be thankful. You should be constantly thanking God for the stuff in your life and for what he's doing for you in your life. And <laughs> let me ask you a question. If, uh, if the only time someone talks to you is they want something from you, how would you feel about that person? Right? You wouldn't like it. A lot of people, when they pray the whole time, they go, God, give me this, and God, help me with that. Oh, God, help me in this situation. That's their version of prayer. I'm sure God just goes, wow, this is awesome. <laughs> All right? You need to talk to him. Be thankful. Thankful for your blessings. Spell them out to him. Thank him for this, that, and the other. Uh, and it says to be watchful. Why should you be watchful? Because the devil wants to ruin your day, I'm telling you. Now, in, when we get to the book of Ephesians, which is next, and both of these books are almost carbon copies of each other. I mean, there's, he's stressing the same things. He ends the book of Ephesians about putting on the whole armor of God. Why would you put on armor? Because someone's going to hit you. Don't be shocked when things go wrong in your life. In fact, you should kind of expect it. <laughs> If you're prayerful about things and watchful and always looking for, you know, better to fix problems as you see them coming than to try and fix them later. Does that make any sense? You know, better to, if you get a cough, see the doctor right away than, you know, coming, you know, three years later with tumors all through your lungs. I would advise the first course. All right, it's harder to fix stuff later. If you are watchful, you'll see problems pop in, in a prayerful way. You're praying about stuff. And God, help me be uh, careful and watching and aware. You start catching stuff earlier with your kids. Be a lot better to catch stuff with your kids earlier than find out later, you know, oh, how'd that happen? You know, he's, you know, smoking crack. Okay, well, let's try and help you through that, but it'd be great if you could kind of catch that early on. You see what I'm saying? Be watchful. Don't just, people who don't watch trip and they fall. People aren't aware, walk into pane glass windows or doors, that kind of thing. People aren't careful, drive off the road. People aren't careful. I mean, you need to be watchful. Pay attention in your life. Don't just coast along and then just be shocked when something bad happens. And I would have to say, I think a huge proportion of Christianity, that's exactly what they do. They just, they're not paying attention until something hits the fan in their life. That scuba hits the fan. And they are shocked. Totally, completely mortified and shocked at the trial that they're running into. Well, they're not being very watchful. You say, it's my fault. It's not about fault. You didn't do it. Just pay attention. So in your prayer attitude, be thankful. And one of the things he's emphasizing, be watchful. Lord, help me to be aware. Help me to be, you know, be connected with what's going on in your life. Uh, if your husband's having a real hard time, you shouldn't be hearing this about someone else 10 months later. You should be sensing that from him now, right? Pay attention, pay attention. Same thing with your kids, other people in your life. Be discerning. And pray for us, Paul says, which... We don't do now because he's long gone. But pray for us, he said, at the time that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. He's writing from prison. Pray that I will proclaim it clearly as I should. Uh, I like these words. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. What does that mean? Unbelievers. Watch how you act in front of unbelievers. Now, what does that mean? Um, it can mean two things. One, it, well, it probably can mean many things, but in a general sense, one is, um, you know, 
if you come across two holier than thou, you'll freak them out, all right? Or if you're acting very badly, that's a bad testimony. You see what I'm saying? Watch how you come across uh, unbelievers. Some Christians are, are very bad at this. Um, they uh, assume that everyone in their life is a born-again Christian, and if they're not, <laughs> they're shocked. And they come off real preaching and everything, and people just think they're crazy. They do. Have you ever known people like this? They're wonderful Christians, but you hope no one knows that they're your friend. <laughs> right? Because they can never shut it off. They're always just being jerks. They're using their Christianity to be a jerk. And then people reject them, and they think they're being persecuted. No, you're not being persecuted. You're a jerk. Okay? You're supposed to be the kind of person that draws people to yourself. Be a nice person. Be kind. Don't be shoving Bible verses, you know, walking up to somebody at work and I, Praise the Lord! How you doing, brother? You feel with the Holy Ghost today? What a guy still working off a hangover. You're yelling Bible verses. I mean, what the heck are you talking about? Now, there's people who actually encourage that kind of talk. No, you're a nut job. Be wise in how you approach people from the outside. Number one, understand, understand they're from the outside. Understand that they're unbelievers. You're just rattling off scriptural verses <laughs> sayings that you learned in church, you know, is be wise, all right? Think, think it through. Uh, he says, make the most of every opportunity. The context, I guess, is in your attitude and dealings with outsiders. Be wise in how you act with outsiders. Make the use of every opportunity. Opportunity for what? To share your faith. Look for opportunities. And that's why I say, you know, you, you get to be friends enough with somebody, eventually you're going to see awful things happen in their lives. That's what happens. It's life. This is your opportunity. Talk to them. Man, if I pray for you. Oh, man, my, my granny's really sick. What's your name? You mind if I pray for her? You know, let them know you're doing stuff like that. Being nice. Look for opportunities to be kind. They're in trouble. Maybe you can help them. How do you become aware of that? Looking for opportunities. Uh, I know it's kind of hard, because most of them when we go to work, it's hard enough just to work, right? You got to do your job. You got to put up the wall. You got to put in the this. I mean, whatever you're doing for a living, you're working, seeing patients, whatever it is. But don't forget who you are. You are an ambassador of Christ. In the midst of your daily life, look for opportunities. Look for opportunities to splash God on people. But do it in wise ways, you know. Don't just jump down their throats because, you know, someone might make a comment about, you know, I, I don't know how we all got here, you know. I guess we were, you know, crawled out of the primordial swamp and stuff like that. And then some Christians will say, no, no, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say we came out of the swamp. The Bible says we were created by the hand of God. Well, they're going to call the police or something or get away from you. I need to jump. Well, what they're saying wasn't true. So what? Take your medication. Quit it. Freaking out over stuff. Don't jump on every little thing that somebody says is wrong. Look for opportunities where you can speak into their lives and have an impact in their lives. All right. Those of you who, those who hear, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's what Jesus would say. All right. I'll let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt. Tasty conversation. All right? I was bringing life to people and stuff that you say. You know, you walking around talking about how much your life sucks is not a conversation seasoned with grace. Right? There's people like this, right? You want to get around them. Every time they talk, it's like, Bleh. It's like, well, you're a party to be around. You know, let your conversation be seasoned with salt. Graceful. So that you may know how to answer Everyone, all this is about having impact on people around you. That's what he's talking about. All right, and then he gives his final greetings, Tickius. I guess that's how you say it, I don't know. We'll tell you all the news about me, so he sends Tickius to them along with this letter. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. Uh... Why would that be? Because he's not telling them everything that's happening to him in this letter. He 
you know, what they would do is he'd write the letter to basically cover the major things he wants them to know, and then he would send people along so they could ask questions. Well, how's he doing? What's been going on? And they would fill him in. It'd be kind of nice if they wrote that, some of that down. It'd be kind of, right, it'd be fun to read, but they didn't do that. They'd send these guys along. Um, just as, so, you, so you know about his circumstances that he may encourage your hearts. He's also coming with Onesimus. You remember our Onesimus? That was that little letter. What was the name of that letter? Philemon, is that what it is? Yes. Yeah, yeah, he writes, we read that real quickly. Paul writes to Philemon about this runaway slave called Onesimus, who Paul runs into and leads him to Christ, and now he's a brother in the Lord, and he writes that short little letter uh, to be nice to Onesimus and take him back, and uses every guilt phrase he can possibly think of. Remember when we read this? It was rather hilarious, you know. You don't have to do it, but remember, you wouldn't be wrong if it one for me. You know. You know, if he owes you any money, I'll pay it. The guy's in jail. How's he going to pay it, right? So, I mean, he just, he just uses every guilt he could on Philemon. If I were Philemon, I'd just let the guy go. I don't know what ever happened. So, anyway, now, because he wrote in Philemon that he's going to send him back, and now we're reading that when he goes back, He's going back with this letter back to, and that's why we assume Philemon lived in Colossae, which is where this letter is going. All right, so he's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. Uh, They will tell you everything that is happening here, again, giving them all the details verbally, which we are not aware of. Uh, My fellow prisoner, whatever his name is, sends his greeting, so he's uh, in jail with somebody else. He must have won him to the Lord, uh, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Now, I presume this is the bar- Mark that Barnabas and Paul fought over. Do you remember this? Paul and Barnabas were on the first missionary journey. Uh, where are we? From, from Antioch. And they went around, here, and they came back. And then when they wanted to go on the second missionary journey, uh, Barnabas says, well, let, let's go back to visit these guys. And let's take John Mark. And Paul didn't want to take John Mark because John Mark was not faithful. And he abandoned them at some point. Wanted to go see his mom. I don't know. Who knows? It doesn't say. Anyway, they have this big fight. So up to this point, you're always hearing about Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. And then it switches to Paul and Silas, Paul and Silas. Because that's when Paul and Barnabas have this meltdown over John Mark. And that's why Paul goes this way. (laughs) He's going to go visit the same guys, but he goes over land because he doesn't want to go to bars. It's not a very high point. And these are Christian leaders and they can't stand each other, you know, so everybody has to deal with jerks at different levels. All right. So he has this meltdown and it's interesting. He says here, uh, apparently Mark is now, the cousin of Barnabas, is back with Paul. So they must have, you know, even, it makes sense. I mean, they know better. If they're having a big fight over something, at some point you still have to forgive people. Right? Even after you had the big blowout and stuff, you still got to get right and you got to let stuff go. And I'm sure Paul knew this, having written about it a million times. So now he's fine with Mark. Uh, You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him, he says. Jesus, not uh, Jesus Christ, but Jesus, who's called Justice, also sends greetings. Uh, Jesus was a a fairly common name in those days. very common in uh, South America, actually. If you go down, there's all kinds of guys named Jesus. They're called Jesus, you know. Hey, Jesus, what's happening? You're actually saying Jesus. Uh, These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, from Colossae, and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's hanging out here with me. He's always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Aeropolis, our dear friend Luke, the doctor. Y'all remember who Luke is? He's the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he's the one who wrote the book of Acts. And he's the one we were reading in Acts where he's always talking about, and Paul did this, and they did this, and then all of a sudden switched to, and then we did this, and all the detail got way more. That was Luke. That's when Luke started traveling with Paul. So he, that was a first-hand event. So that's who Luke. So Luke is still with him at this point, as we know, because we read in the book of Acts that Luke was with him on this journey all the way to Rome. So he's in Rome writing these letters. Luke is there. Uh, 
interesting stuff. And Demas is also there, and he sends greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church and her house. After this letter has been read to you, see to it that you also read, the, uh, read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. So he writes this letter to the Colossians, and, which is classy here, and he writes a letter to Laodicea. And he says, so read uh, their letter and give them this letter when you're done so you can read it. Uh, the letter to Laodicea is one of the lost letters. We don't have the letter. We don't. I would assume it's probably just fairly similar. As we're getting ready to read Ephesians, it's very similar to what we just read in class. He's writing in a very consistent style at this point and, and, and dealing with things. So uh, <clears throat> one of the lost letters, the other lost letter that we know, there was a previous letter to the Corinthians that we have no idea where that is that he referenced to in 1 Corinthians. So technically, 1 Corinthians is the same Corinthians, but it's first us because it's the first one we got, all right? Um, after this letter has been read to you, oh, I just read that. Oh, then tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. So he's basically prophesying, speaking to Archippus. Uh, the Spirit of God is saying to Paul, hey, tell him to finish what he's supposed to be doing. So Paul says, hey, tell him you're supposed to finish what you're supposed to be doing. And God uses all this to speak to him. Who is he? What are you doing? I have no idea. Uh, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. He's in prison. Grace be with you. All right. So then you flip back, hang a left to the letter to the Ephesians, which he reads, uh, writes now to them. Uh, remember now, this is a very condensed period of time. He's only there two years, and he writes off all these letters, boom, 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 so they're... Uh, Pretty much he's writing one right after the other. The letter to the Ephesians now continues pretty much in the same vein. I was reading earlier, uh, some theologian has said that uh, virtually 50% of the verses in Ephesus are identical to the verses in Colossians. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's very, very similar talk. But again, different enough, I don't... I would have never picked that up reading it the way that they were describing it, but basically saying the same kind of things, talking about basic Christianity, hitting on the major points. So now let's read. Now remember, Ephesus, he was there for quite a while uh, on his uh, second, second, second or third, whatever. Yeah, second missionary journey. There it is. Da -da -da -da. So he takes off from Antioch, comes way up here, comes around, and he stays in Ephesus for a while, that's when he writes the letters back to the Corinthians and things. So, anyway, so, he's in Ephesus now, he's writing the letter to the Ephesus. So let's go to the Ephesians and take a look at this. Verse one, chapter one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. There are several things that happen here. Now, a lot of guys make a big deal out of verse three, the tense. It says, praise God who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And I've heard many preachers preach big, long sermons on this. It is not that he's going to bless you. He has blessed. He's already blessed us. It's all in Christ, and they really make a big deal of the tense in this. I read this. I don't get a big blow away with the tense. I just, you know, I don't know. They're great sermons. I'm just not going to preach it to you. All right? So the reality is all our blessings come from Christ. The tense of when it happens, I don't know. Someone smarter than me can figure all that out. Uh, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Now, then, then he uses the word predestined. So this is where we get this idea of predestination, which is the only other time he really dealt much with it was when he was writing to the Roman church. Uh, this is an argument among some people in Christianity. It's, they're relatively, you know, it depends on how intense they are. A hardcore Calvinist you know, basically believes, doesn't believe in free will. There is no free will. God already predestined you to be one thing or the other. 
Uh, that's a ex- very extreme version of it. There's a million versions of that teaching. Uh, we tend to lean much more on the free will side of it. So, well, how do you just justify the predestination part of it? No, I don't think this is in terms of individuals as much as I think what he's saying is God made a plan. He didn't wing it. He didn't after Jesus died on the cross, he said, well, what are we going to do now? I hadn't thought this through. All this was thought through a long time ago. Us in Christ. This whole plan was predestined. All we're doing as he's preaching the gospel is fulfilling the plan of God. To take it to the point where there's no free will is patently absurd. Why would you preach? Right? Uh, he's preaching, trying to convince people to be believers. He says, I do everything I can to persuade men. Why would you do that if it's already determined whether or not they're going to believe or not? So I think, now we have people in our church for many minutes that are in all ends of this. We don't really care, you know, if you are a hardcore Calvinist, God bless you. Don't get mad. I was predestined to say what I just said, which makes them very angry. So anyway, can't leave it alone, can you, Mark? So, so the, the preset plan, the preset part of it is the plan. It's not that you don't have a free will in this. In my opinion, you hear someone who says it differently or a different, ver- again, there's a lot of versions of this. Um, but I did see on Facebook, I thought it was hilarious, great sense of humor. Uh, it's a t-shirt, it says, Calvinism, some lives matter. <laughs> Which is hilarious, because theologically speaking, only some people are destined to go to heaven. So they put at some lives matter, you know, the hashtag, pretty funny. Anyway, so, hardcore Calvinist. Okay, so, he uh, predestined for us adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. All that plan was already set out in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely given us in the one he loves, talking about Jesus, God talking about Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. So he's talking about, again, fundamental Christianity. What do we do? We believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. We have forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ. This is basic Christianity. Any version of Christianity that denies this, they're just all jacked up. And, uh, and you want to stay away from it. But, you know, we're talking virtually every kind of Christian you can think of, if they're, unless they're nuts, believes this. Okay, um, all this grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. What is he talking about? You know, he's basically talking about the plan, the plan of salvation. Everything that God had planned and set out, now he's making clear. Now we get it. This is, because up in the back here, they didn't quite get it. They didn't understand. Starting with Abraham. Abraham didn't get it at all. All he knew is there was a God in heaven and who made this covenant with him and he was going to follow him and obey him, but he didn't, he didn't really know. This, this is 650 years before the Ten Commandments. They didn't know, you know, they didn't know a whole lot of anything. So uh, the more that we get into the Old Testament, the more uh, God's will is revealed, particularly in the law, so they become really focused on the law of Moses, which Paul now argues we don't live by the law of Moses, but that's the rest of the Old Testament. And even still, their understanding of God to a great degree is not, from our viewpoint, not really all that clear. It wasn't until Jesus came along and started making to them clear, this is what God is about. This is what he's like. This is who he is. This is why he does what he does. And that becomes clear. And even then, though, remember his disciples even though he said, We're, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to get crucified, raised on the third day, they had no idea what he's talking about. When he was crucified, they were shocked. When he was raised from the dead, where did you see that coming? Really? I told you this. Over and over again. But it was like, ging, ging, ging. they weren't getting it. So now, and then after he goes into heaven, you know, now they're preaching the gospel, they still didn't quite get it until the Holy Spirit keeps making to it more and more clear to them how all this works. So that's what Paul's writing about. Uh, his life now is coming to an end. He's only been doing this for what? How long is it? 30, 40 years? I don't know. It's amazing. 
this fat part of the Bible was written over thousands of years. The entire New Testament was written in a space of about 60 years. Amazing. I mean, it's woof. It all happens. Boom. Just like that. Uh, so now Paul is basically writing here what all this has been about. This is now all the fulfillment of everything that we've been hoping for and watching and reading and all that God is doing. This has now come to pass. This incredible plan is now clearer to us. Everything that to everyone else, waiting all these thousands, it was a mystery. What are they talking about? They didn't really know what he was talking about. But they were waiting. They were waiting for the Messiah. The Messiah comes, reveals himself to them. The gospel's being preached. And now it's being preached all over the world. People are coming to Christ. They're experiencing miracles in their life. God is changing them. They're experiencing the forgiveness of sins because of the blood of Jesus. And he's just writing down this incredible mystery that has been hidden for all these years is now made clear to us. And that's what we have. And for the last 2,000 years, we've been walking in the clarity of this message. You know, despite those who've tried to make it more complicated. This is basically it. All right. Now, in him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also are, were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. And this is still to this day. Everything that he's saying, you could, you, we could read this to us today, all these guys who experienced all this, and now we are also included in it because we've responded to the message of truth, the gospel of our salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. What seal? The promised Holy Spirit. When you ask Christ into your life, and you can feel, for some people it's rather dramatic, others it's a little bit more muted, and everybody's different, you know. So, so people really like to have the super dramatic conversion experience, you know, more like Saul, Paul the Apostle, Apostle knocked to the ground, the light shines, he hears God's voice, you know. Some people have really rather dramatic conversion testimonies, and others, it's very, very small. Um, John Wesley, who was a great preacher, he was a little nuts, but he was a great preacher back in the, what was it, 1500s, 1600s, 1500s? Uh, and had an amazing impact. Um, Here's a man who had studied in the ministry, could write and speak fluently English, Greek, Latin, I think German. I mean, he's a smart guy. Uh, He was in the ministry. Uh, He came to America, was a missionary in America in uh, Savannah, Georgia. It was miserable there because it was so hot. Do you remember when we were in Savannah? Oh, man, talk about a trip to the, the very doors of hell or in Savannah, Georgia. Man, it is so hot and humid. These people whine about how cold it is here. It's never as cold as it is hot in Savannah, Georgia, I'm telling you. It is, whoa, miserable. I don't know, I, I was stunned at how awful it was when I was there. Beautiful city, but can't breathe. Um, you know, we're talking like in August, you know, that's just nasty, man. And he writes about this scorching, miserable thing. I'm reading going, holy cow, man, I remember that. And they didn't have air conditioning. At least we could run inside, you know. Uh, but anyway, he's a missionary. He does all this stuff all before he gets saved. You know, some people say, what were you like before? I say, I was a dope smoking hippie. That was my story. <laughs> you know, just, or I was a this, or I was a alcoholic wife beater. I was a this, you know, and, and, uh, John Wesley's stories. I was a pastor preaching the gospel and a missionary working in America before I got saved. I mean, how bizarre is that? I mean, he did everything you would think should be the right thing to do, but he had never truly been converted in his heart, which is great because a lot of y'all come from that context, raised in churches all your life and going everything, but you never truly connected with Christ until recent, and that's why you're here. So that was John Wesley's story. And the way he knew he was converted, he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. That's it. When I read it, I think, man, how do you know it wasn't pizza? You know, wow. But I mean, <laughs> but when you know that you know. So here's some people have this dramatic conversion experience. John Wesley's like, <sighs> so you wouldn't think anything. Then he starts preaching 
and thousands upon thousands upon multiple thousands of people all over England were dramatically changed and converted through his preaching. And in America as well, and he had a huge impact for hundreds and hundreds, still even to this day. But, uh, you know, in his day, it was something else. The minute he had truly accepted Christ in his life and then started preaching, it was day and night. And he was as shocked as anybody. When you read his diary, you know, he kept a, he kept a log, I think I told you this Sunday, of every day of his life. Every day. And there's huge volumes that you can imagine. Or I got a little one volume abridged version, just kind of the highlights. But it's fascinating to read, you know, of he was amazed how people would get converted because of what he would say. And he'd preach in front of thousands of people. They had no microphones and stuff. And he'd always say, I found it interesting they could all hear me. It was like God was just with him everywhere. And people would get converted and they'd fall down crying. And, you know, and he just was very interesting. (laughs) Right, about some guy who fell off his horse. He was so overcome with with the power of the Holy Spirit. "Hmm, Very interesting. He wasn't a very emotional man, you know. I'm not sure the man had any emotion, to be honest with you. Reading it is very odd. Anyway, all that to say, when you ask Christ in your life, whether it was dramatic or just, uh, I can tell now, as muted as that is, and there's all versions of this, and those are certainly listening to me online right now on our campuses and all over the world. Everybody has different, but when it happens, you know. You just know that you know. Uh, and if you don't know, you need to know. You need to get to the point where you really surrender your life to Christ, put your hope in him. And some people, quite frankly, it takes them a long time. I've had people in this church make appointments with me, come and sit in my office. How can I help you? And they just break down crying and said, I need to ask Jesus in my heart. How long have you been coming to this church? Three years. Don't you pray with us every Sunday? Yeah. And you've never gotten this. No, I haven't. And pray with them, and boom, you know, that's when that's their moments. I mean, it varies for different people, you know. I mean, for me, it was pretty instantaneous, but such is the life of a drug-smoking hippie. <laughs> You're kind of a different thing when you start praying. Wow, you know. So anyway, all of this thing that you feel inside of you is the mark that he says. It is the Promise seal, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit that you feel inside of you, despite your struggles, despite your mistakes, despite your failings, despite the sins you won't quit committing for heaven's sakes, whatever it is, that Holy Spirit that you feel inside of you is your down payment that you are a child of God and that you will someday be in glory with him, which is very cool. In other words, this isn't casually given out. You feel this inside, this is a big deal. This is Christ. This is what makes a difference in your life. This is why your friends can tell you're different now. This is like, wow, it's because of what Jesus is doing in you. So anyway, he says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. Look at him, always thanking, 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 thanking. Remembering you in my prayers... I keep asking that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better, which is not our charge, is what we're trying to do in gathering tonight, like when we do these Bible studies on Sunday morning, uh, in small groups that you might meet with. The whole point of this is trying to grow in our faith, okay, so that you might know him better, Uh, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you uh, have been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his his incomparably great power for us who believe. So he's praying three things. One, that your eyes will be opened so you can see the hope that we have. Now, hope in the Bible isn't like hope to remember words change, right? Today, the word hope means wish. Okay? Do you think such and such will happen? I hope so. Well, that's not the word hope. That's not what the word hope, if you look in the dictionary, it's not what it means. They're going to have to rewrite the dictionary with the hope because that's pretty much what it means now. The word hope means absolutely assured something is going to happen. I'm filled with hope. Are you going to be saved? I'm filled with hope. I know we're going to be saved. Okay? You're hanging on to your float, bobbing around in the bay. 
because you weren't paying attention, hit a rock and your boat went down. And now you're bobbing around and you, you know, they saw your flare and you are now filled with great hope. You're still bobbing and freaking out over the cost of what you just lost. <laughs> but, but you're filled with hope. That powerful hope. This thing, when you're walking as a Christian, and that's what this whole thing about the Holy Spirit being inside of you. True Christianity isn't a hope so kind of thing. When you ask people, are, are you going to go to heaven someday? They go, oh, I hope so. They don't get this. They don't get that. I'm wishing, I'm you know, hoping that everything balances out. No, when you truly encounter Christ and you know that you know that you know and your knower knows that you know, you now have hope. It's an absolute assurance of what God is going to do. So what he's praying is, I'm praying that your eyes will, so you can see this incredible hope. Because what he's saying is, even though you guys got this, you still don't really see it. And that is true to this day. And that's why we do what we do. And that's why we preach what we preach. And why we do everything in the classes we open, everything. Trying to open your eyes. Hello. Hello, look around, okay? So he's, number one, that you'll be able to see this incredible hope that you have. Number two, that you'd uh, be able to see the incredible riches of his glorious inheritance that you have. And number three, that you'll be to start to understand the incredible power that you have that is available to you. This is what we try to teach. And people have a hard time with it. So Paul's saying, I'm praying for you. And we as pastors need to pray and, and pray for your kids. If anybody you know, if you're in a strong place, pray for others that are growing in their faith. Christianity isn't an automatic, that's what we're gonna talk about on Sunday, by the way, this whole jerk thing. See, a lot of you think the reason you're getting upset is because of a jerk. No, the jerk isn't causing your problem, it's revealing your problem. Ew, so you already, already have an insight shot into the Sunday on sermon, okay, so Sunday sermon. See, because we're still growing. We're still growing. We still need to change. All right, and what Paul said, I, I want your eyes to open. God, make it clear to them so you can start to see what you have. It reminds me of the story of this guy. I don't know if it's a true story. Some people make up stories just to make points. But Jesus did that. He said parables, right? He made all these parables. So, but apparently the story goes, this guy is walking at night along a train track and he's coming over this bridge and stuff like that and he trips and then he falls over the side and he's hanging on and this is like an hour or two before dawn and he is terrified he can't get enough uh, strength to pull himself up but he doesn't want to let go he locks his hands he locks his arms it's painful it is awful and he's sitting there hoping someone and he didn't know what he was going to do and finally as the sun cracks up he looks and so he's about six inches over the ground. <laughs> and of course, he lets himself down. If he'd only known, see? That's what a lot of us are like. We have so much power to make a difference in your life, you just don't see it yet. You have so many rich blessings that would help you be an incredibly successful person, and you just, you can't see it. You're still hanging on. You're filled with this incredible hope, this hope, this assurance so that some of your doubts start getting blown away because now you're filled with an assurance of hope is all there for you, but you're hanging onto the train track and you just can't see it. And at some point we can tell you, but what Paul's saying, at some point I just pray God will open your eyes to see it. That the sun will start coming up so you can see where you're at. All right? It's like someone who's broke, who's broken, moaning and groaning and doesn't realize that in fact someone has deposited $1 million in their checking account. They just don't know. And all the time they're miserable and, and they never want to check because they don't even want to look. You, know, you ever feel like that? You don't even want to look at your checking account balance and just, and just throw them away. Oh, everything sucks. I don't, want to know. I don't even want to know, you know. But in doing that, you've missed the point that someone dropped a million bucks in your account. But your life doesn't change. Because you keep living like a pauper and you squeak from one thing. All you know is you don't bounce checks anymore. You just think you're lucky. When in fact, you got a million dollars in there, all yours, tax-free, you don't know it. And when you start to realize and you actually read one of those accounts, oh, well, how did that happen? So Paul is saying, look, there is so much for you that God has for you, this incredible hope that you don't have to walk around in doubts, you start walking around in absolute confidence that the riches of the glorious grace that we have is incomparable, he says, is available to you. And this amazing power, and he goes on, he says, we're talking about the power that raised Christ from the dead. We're not talking, you know, 
nine volt battery here. All of this is available to you. You gotta open your eyes. You gotta say, I'm praying that God will make this clear to you. We'll pick that up again when I come back next Wednesday. Joe's gonna take his uh, step three on the other religions. I'll come back, we'll do this, and then we'll take off for the summer. Anyway, God bless you guys. Hello, let's end in prayer, and I'll let you go. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We read stuff like this, and it can't help but be aware of that we also, many of us, struggle. God, we don't see it. It's hard. We're not filled with hope. We got all kinds of doubts. We're not overcome with riches and blessings. Our life kind of sucks. And as far as power, it's like we got no power. But the truth is, God, we have all of this. I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding. Help us to see what we have. Help us to be aware of our situational situation. Our situational awareness would become acute. So we know where we are, who we are, what you have done in us so that we can start really living the kind of life that other people will say, wow, how do you do that? And then that'll give us the opportunity to share your love with them because we're paying attention and looking for opportunities. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. See you Sunday.